everybody, and welcome to Watch Party Gaming. Um, this is your host, Siobhan, and I am joined by my panel. Say hello, panel. Hello, hello panel. Hello, panel. Hello, panel. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again, this time with feeling. Me? Yeah. Oh, there, there was feeling there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that feeling might be pure terror, but you know, no, you no. Get used I to actually, it. as I was saying it, something got caught in my throat. Hello, panel. And that is the voice of Madeline, who is joining us for the first time today. So, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. We also have Ruark. Hello. And Axel. Hi there. And today we are launching into season two of Good Omens. And I've been walking around vibrating all week because I'm waiting for this for so long. A <laughs> couple of things before we get into the episode. Um, first of all, I just want to address the strike that is currently going on, writers and actors. Um, um, and I'm not going to list off the name of the unions because I'm terrible with names. But some of the um, actors are on strike, as is Neil Gaiman himself. Neil Gaiman has been very clear with fans who have asked him that he does not want people to boycott the shows in support of the strike. Um, he has said that actually consuming the media shows the studios um, that there is value in the work that they're doing. And so he's encouraging people to watch the shows unless the, the union changes course and asks for a boycott. Nobody should be boycotting. And the other thing he has also said is that the chance of getting season three is um, very much influenced by how much people watch. And there's something about completion rate. If the show is watched its entirety by a certain date, that counts towards their statistics. Whereas if you watch it one episode a week, depending on how long the show is, it won't necessarily count. I'm going to be watching one episode per week because that's how we have scheduled the podcast and I, I want to go into the podcast without spoilers because I'm terrible at <laughs> keeping track of things. Um, but what I am going to do is I'm just going to finish streaming it on like a computer in a different room or something just so that I count towards their, their statistics because I really want to see season three. Season three I, I talked about this in, in uh, one of our previous podcasts. Season three is actually going to be the story that Neil and Terry Pratchett came up with together, whereas season two is how we get to that point. Wasn't that in like a Las Vegas hotel room or something? Where that something was, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was in a convention hotel room. They came up with the plot. So so it was a convention hotel room. So even if it wasn't in Las Vegas, it was in Las Vegas. It was pretty much Las Vegas yeah. okay. spiritually, if not physically. <laughs> that sounds like a Terry Prattism to think that like all hotels exist inside of Las Vegas. Like all convention hotels. All convention exist. hotels. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They are. You, they are spiritually in Las Vegas. But doesn't that sound like something Terry Project would have posited? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So, on to the uh, episode one. First of all, first impressions. What's everybody's general impression of season two? It's definitely feels more like a Neil Gaiman story than a Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett story. Yes, um, I, I concur wholeheartedly with that. And that's not a bad thing by any means. He's doing it really well. And if he could do a good enough imitation of Terry Pratchett to make it feel like a Terry Pratchett thing, then he should probably be writing Terry Pratchett-style novels and making far more money than he is actually doing. Uh, I, I would say Neil Gaiman is probably doing just fine at this point. Yeah, but he would do even, <laughs> like, Pratchett's sales are even bigger than his, so I kind of feel like he could be ridiculous. I, I, I only see Terry Pratchett with one streaming show at the moment, so... That's, that's valid. My impression was that... We're going into some really interesting directions with this. Um, I love the kind of American Horror Story concept of seeing some familiar actors playing different roles. And I think that's, like, fascinating. That's something that you don't see very often. So I'm really curious about that. If there's a reason for it, if it's going to come out, that there's some connection between those characters. Um, and... I really loved the the extended version of the world that we're starting to see. So the the piece about the actors, what what Neil Gaiman has said publicly 
It's just that these were actors who had a great time doing season one and wanted to come back. And so they, because their initial roles weren't available, they recast them. So I think there's a total of four, I think. So yeah, so I just, I wanted to agree with what Axel said about how it, you can you can see the difference where there's a kind of a Terry Pratchett shaped hole in the story. Like if you compare the opening scenes about the beginning of the universe in season one to how it was done in season two, it's very different. And it's not that Neil Gaiman can't write funny, but it's a different kind of funny. Like some of the the comedic, it's the comedic part that's that's very different. Terry Pratchett's funny has always reminded me very much of Douglas Adams' funny. Like, they have a really similar style. Yes. I don't yeah. know. Lots of wordplay, uh, a very strong sense of the ridiculous. Yeah. Really dry observation in, yeah. in the vein of ridiculousness. Yeah. And just super fast, like, never, ever lets up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to go back and reread some more Terry Pratchett. I've read some of his stuff, but not all of it. I haven't read very much very much worth it i read the first one and didn't like it because it was a D character and i at the time was not super interested in dungeons and dragons but i went back um i think the second one i read was going postal and absolutely loved it <laughs> it was amazing because it was about municipal infrastructure i guess which is more my thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> different kind of nerd over here <laughs> It start, he starts off writing a, a fantasy spoof, um, and as the series progresses, it gets less fantasy. The fantasy becomes more of just the setting. Like Star Trek, it's, you know, modern issues in space. <laughs> and Terry Pratchett is like, modern issues in Ankh-Morpeck. Yes, exactly. Back to Good Omens. So we have the very first scene where... As it turns out, Aziraphale and Crowley meet for the very first time. One of the things that was interesting about this scene is you don't actually find out what Crowley's angel, angel name was, because I'm pretty sure Crowley was not what he was called when he was an angel. What I thought was really cool was just how happy Crowley is. He's so blithe. He's an enthusiastic. He squeals when the stars go off. <laughs> it's, it is absolutely the evolution of a cynic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to see somebody so excited about this amazing thing that they're doing and watching the scales fall from their eyes slowly. And it also sets up his fall. It tells you what his fall is really clearly, right? Like, he obviously tried to get a suggestion box set up so he could make a suggestion. So after we watched this scene... We went back and watched the uh, the opening scene of Good Omens because I wanted to see if it held up to Aziraphale and Crawley having met already. Does it look like they're actually meeting for the second time when they're on the wall in Eden? And the way that it goes, I think that it is, it can be read either way. Like Crawley crawls up and then turns into an angel and Aziraphale looks at him and then does a double take and they have a conversation that absolutely I, I could feel as these are two people who who have met before and Aziraphale is, is feeling very very awkward which is likely valid because the last time he met Crawley they were both angels and now Crawley isn't and he doesn't know what to call him in the in the opening scene in in when they meet in uh, space, Aziraphale gives his name. Crowley just says "nice to meet you" and doesn't introduce himself back. One of the things that we that I remember from season one is the scene in Mesopotamia, which is supposedly the second time they meet on Earth because. Crowley says, so how did that go, you know, giving away the flaming sword? He calls him by name. Aziraphale doesn't give his name on the wall, but Crowley knows his name when they meet the second time. So there is some evidence that they met before and remember each other. I have to say, I, I am not a believer in the um, gospel of what is on the screen. So I don't think we've seen every meeting. In fact, we know we haven't seen every meeting because we keep seeing new meetings. So yeah. there's nothing to suggest oh, yeah. that they haven't 
met many, many times, and we're just seeing the ones that were interesting or the ones that applied to the plot. So I, I agree with that, but I do think that the Mesopotamia one specifically Crowley asked about the sword. So that almost did feel like a follow-up conversation. That's a fair point. I, or, or Crowley could have been teasing Aziraphale every time they met. So how That is also true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not be out of character. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And the thing is, is that, yeah, like, it's not necessary that those be the only meetings, but... If you wa- it is possible to watch it and say, okay, we're, if these are the only meetings, does this work? And it does. Right? Like, you know, and, and just doing that, I think, is a really nice spot of filming. I'm inclined to give Neil the benefit of the doubt that he had planned it that way, because that way he looks to be cleverer. <laughs> And he's a pretty clever guy, so, you know. There's a, there was an absolutely wonderful interaction, just talking about Neil Gaiman being clever, there was a wonderful interaction on Tumblr where somebody said, so I have to ask you about something that I saw in Good Omens where Beelzebub says, it's written, your world will end in fire and flame. And Aziraphale lost his bookshop to flame and Crowley lost his car to flame and those were their worlds, so are those connected? And Gaiman said, that's a wonderful theory. I'm going to adopt that and tell everybody I did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a, such a classic thing for writers to have things pointed out to them by their fans that they didn't intend, at least consciously. So that's that tracks completely. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I thought about this scene is you get into this whole thing where Crowley is saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Why would you do this? You know, um, and says, how much trouble could I possibly get into for asking questions? So we've we've talked in season one about how um, God heavily stacked the deck in favor of averting the apocalypse. Like she messed up the baby exchange. She, you know, one assumes she let Agnes Nutter have have prophecies. Like, people have agency, but she's still playing a game where she changes the odds to make the outcome that she wants more likely. I have a headcanon that Aziraphale and Crowley specifically were chosen by her to be the agents on Earth because they were the ones who would get invested in the continuation of humanity. And I think that Crowley running up to her and saying, you're doing this all wrong, was what made her pick him out to be the rep in hell. You need one in heaven, you need one in hell. You're questioning me? Great, I'm going to send you to hell, and you're going to fight on behalf of the humans from hell. That's how he got the job. Azurfell got the job when he handed off his flaming sword and lied to her face about it. She's like, great, I like you. You're in charge (laughs) for the heaven side. That's a really cool idea, and I hadn't thought of that at all. I wonder, too, though, if um, maybe the angels... There is some lore in other properties out there that... God turned his her their back on the angels when they created humans. Like, that somehow the angels had been favored beings and then humans supplanted them. And there's a little bit of resentment on the part of angels. Older, older siblings syndrome? Yeah, except worse, because, you know... It's older species syndrome? Golden, The golden child, yeah. And so, you know, the um, the idea that maybe humans get free will... Of a sort, but do the angelic beings get free will? Clearly, they've figured it out. Yeah, like I think in like um, Catholic theology, the idea is that angels only have one free will moment, which is when they decide whether to become devils or not, whether they decide to stay with God or fall. But the way they're portrayed in this series, it's clear that the angels do have agency. They do, you know, like they are making decisions on their own um, because they don't know the ineffable plan. So they have to figure out what to do and they justify all of their actions by saying it's part of the ineffable plan. And you can't argue against that because the plan is ineffable. It seems to me like the ineffable plan is just to F things up as much as possible. Pretty much. (laughs) God is playing dice with the universe. Yep. (laughs) Throw it in a box, give it a shake, see what happens. Mm hmm. 
<clears throat> Isn't that science? <laughs> Only if you write it down. One more thing on that scene. Um, I really loved at the end that it was Crowley whose wing covered Aziraphale as, as the planets started falling. That was amazing. Yeah, that was such a um, lovely which, which little detail. Which means that I was correct when I said it was Crawley who who sheltered Aziraphale first. It, I just didn't know it yet. Yes, <laughs> that is correct. So there's one thing I do want to talk about. So I actually had two quibbles about this entire episode. One very very minor one, and one major one. And my major one happened in this scene. You see, Crowley is an angel. He has brown eyes. He doesn't have the snake eyes anymore. He also has white wings. I have a problem with the white wings. There's this whole Western perception of black being associated with evil. And I've seen people um, write off by saying, oh, the wings got burned when he fell, and that's what turned them black. But I still have a problem with it. I, I don't like the idea that angels have white wings and demons have black wings. That bothers me. And I understand that because they set it in space, the wings will show just plain show up better if they're white. So there, there is a practical reason for doing it. I still think they could have worked around that some way. I, I feel like um, if Crowley, as an angel, like was created and had black wings, everybody would be like, oh, oh, oh that one's going down. I don't know. Everything in heaven is white or beige. I think if you had an angel with black wings, they would be tainted by that fact from the start you could also make people more individual before the fall that's one way to get around it maybe everybody had different wings before the well, fall. yeah if, if we're gonna go full-on rainbow wings then i'm on board but yeah the other yeah. the other way of dealing with it would be to show other devils with their wings out and those wings being white so and and like the reason that crowley has black wings isn't because he's it's a devil but because it's cool it's Black aesthetic choice. Cool. Yes. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. But, but he is not cool yet. He is no. not discovered cool. <laughs> he's so open and sweet. <laughs> right. But like when he, by the time he's become the snake, he has developed a sense of aesthetics because he's he nibbled a bit off the apple, let's say. And it gave him the knowledge of cool. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> I loved... Um, Speaking of him not being cool and his aesthetic in that first scene, I loved that he had that cupy curl up top. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I assume that that was supposed to be a reference to the, the Cupid, the cupy doll kind of thing. Okay, that's a bit of an American, a bit of Americana for me. Oh, you weren't familiar with that that phrase. I, I've heard the phrase, but I don't know what it means. Yeah, Cupid doll was a a little doll that you could win at at uh, fairs and and things like that by throwing the thing at the other thing, and oh, it was okay. just a stupid little doll with this with a little uh, hair swirl, like like Matt right. was talking about. Big right, apple cheeks and yeah. like big eyes. I mean, David Tennant was just absolutely channeling everything about the Cupid doll in that right to the point that I think it has to have been on purpose. <laughs> yeah, that seems very likely. After the scene in space, we get the credits. Similar animation style to season one, but with different things going on in the background. There's a scene that looks almost like they, there are space elevators. And I'm like, are we going into the future at some point? Yeah, the, the credits really look like this is going to be interesting and exciting and have like apocalyptic themes. Yeah, the credits in the first season definitely... Everybody spelled out the there. story yeah. of the season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would assume that th this should be the same for thematic coherence and whatnot. So after the credits, we focus in on London and swoop into the bookstore, where Zerfel has just gotten a note from someone who apparently rents a shop that he owns and runs a record shop. And there's the whole scene where Zerfel goes in to speak to her and she can't pay her rent. I love the front of the car underneath the counter. <laughs> I could smell that shop. I spent so much time in rec used record stores in New Orleans that as soon as that scene popped up, I could just smell it, that cardboard and vinyl. And it was like... Oh. <laughs> 
the thing I love about this interaction is when Aziraphale says, oh, I'll just take these records without paying for them. And he's like, oh, giddy, he's doing something bad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stealing, kind of. I'm taking something without paying for it. I could never do that back when I was an angel, but I can do it now. (laughs) He's so happy. It is so cute. Like the only landlord that won't be against the wall when the revolution comes. Yeah. Right? He's he's been on Earth for 6,000 years. He still doesn't quite get how things work, but he's like just so sweet about it. I I think he gets it. I just think he doesn't really doesn't really care yeah whether he understands it he he could i think he could understand how humans really worked if he put his mind to it but he really doesn't want to because that would reduce his happiness i i think it's it's kind of the uh adam savage approach to life i reject your reality and substitute my own yeah yeah and he's an angel so he can do that yeah pretty much I mean, he, he's buying books from somewhere, which means he has some concept of the exchange of money is for he goods. I mean... Is he, though, or are they just randomly arriving by, by miraculous chance? I think Crowley buys him a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. And denies all knowledge of it. <laughs> I mean, it's possible that things just come to him without... Well, I mean, we have a car that turns all 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 tapes into Queen's greatest hits. No, that's all cars. That that's how it oh, works. All cars. In, yes, all oh, cars. That's, okay. Yeah, that's not. Uh, I thought it was specifically Crowley's car. No, no, no. Oh, okay. That's that's a thing that happens to all cars everywhere. Um, and if you'd lived in the seventies, uh, you would, would you know, would know this. it was true. <laughs> I, I, I I did live in the seventies. I just wasn't particularly aware of anything in the seventies. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Every car had a copy of Queen's Greatest Hits, whether you purchased yep. it or not. My car turned everything into Black Celebration. That's because you were a little bit... That's because, like, next generation. Fair, fair, fair. I can't even tell you how many copies of Black Celebration I'd find in my car, and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> my car turned them all into copies of Skinny Puppy's 12-inch anthology, and I cannot tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> the, these are all, this all tracks. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like I, I get. I think what what must have happened is like a greater devi- degree of individualization in the in the eighties, where it, so it became possible that instead of all turning into Queen's greatest hits, um, it was what you wanted. P- perhaps that was just cars in Britain that turned it into Queen's greatest hits. Could it be? Maybe it was an eight track thing. Oh yeah. Back in the fifteen hundreds, every cart driver was like, every Ludus just turns into Hey Nani Nani. <laughs> so moving on <laughs> we get to the scene with crowley in the park where a secret agent tries to hit him up and he's got the wrong guy which this is an example of neil gaiman comedy which i think is friggin' hilarious yes so the the thing that i wonder with this is he says yeah the the azerbaijani sector chief's right over there we know that they can't necessarily read the minds of humans because they don't always know what the hell they're doing. So does he just know the Azerbaijani sector chief because he saw him at, at a recent meeting or something? Like, I, I think this is kind of like implying that like they're all on, they're all scheduled, right? And he's just been there for so long. He knows. Well, he's unemployed now, right? So he's just hanging out in the park all day. <laughs> And, and he watches and listens and, you know, like every Tuesday at 10 o'clock, yep, that's Azerbaijan. And then, at, you know, 12.15, here comes uh, Armenia, etc., etc. I also suspect that the Azerbaijani sector chief has approached him at some point and said, you know, something. Oh, yeah. Well. The chocolate well. mousse flies at midnight. So did you notice what uh, Crowley was reading? I had to freeze the, the scene. It's the Tadfield Advertiser and the... Headline is, is Tadfield the best village in England? He's keeping tabs on the Antichrist just to make sure nothing goes sideways. I wonder who the author of that story is. This is set, what, five years in the future? You know what? I don't know. Because those kids would be, if it's five years, those kids would be 17, 18 by now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were 11 in the first show. Oh, so they're a little bit younger than I thought. if If we say it was filmed in 2018, when they were 11, they'd be 16 now. And that, like, five years sound, sounds about right. Like, it's been a few years since the end of the world didn't, and they've settled into a new routine. So then Shax comes to visit, 
She's delivering his mail in exchange for, and giving him information in exchange for something. I, I love how bad at it she is. She's new. Like, like she, 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 does, she does not understand the secret agent thing. And she's like trying to explain to him like, okay, I'm going to give you some information and then you give me some. Okay. She's new. <laughs> she's very new. It, yeah. I, th I think this is, you know, like it, it speaks to how adapted to life on earth Crawley is compared to all the other devils. Yeah. Because for everybody else, they're just, they watch, they pop up occasionally, do a thing, and then go home. He lives there, so he has a totally different way of engaging with the world. Um, and she's really smart because she's using him as a mentor. Like, that's, you know, because she could just go off and do her own thing. But she's figured out that that's a way to cause herself no end of, of hassle. So he's kind of, he's kind of like the ambassador that's gone native. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's retired. She's she's very intense. Like everything he says, she's like, "What does that mean?" And he's like, "Sarcasm." <laughs> Look it up. Which is very much like that. That that's kind of the new person on the job, right? That, that you're listening to the expert, and you don't want to miss anything, any of the, any of their wisdom. So you have to take everything seriously because you don't know what might be really important. Just a note about the costuming. The thing I took away from was that they were set up to look like bookends. Crowley's all in black with red hair. Shaxx is all in red with black hair. And the other thing I just wanted to say is because at the very end, she says, now that I've told you something, do you have anything for me? And he throws her off with the, the comment about you're supposed to feed ducks peas. Frozen peas. Frozen peas. It's good for them. And I thought that I was like... She doesn't actually tell him what she's looking for. It's assumed that he knows. And my assumption is she wants to know how to get out of being destroyed by holy water. But of course, you can't tell her. That's the secret that every demon's going to want to know. How do you, how do you mm -hmm. become invincible to holy water? And he can't tell her, well, it was a trick. Because then that makes him vulnerable. And makes, more importantly, makes Aziraphale invulnerable. So from there, we go to uh, our first shot of Maggie and Nina together, which I thought was super cute because the first thing Nina says to Maggie is, see anything you fancy? And Maggie kind of giggles. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> but, but you're at work and it would be inappropriate. <laughs> I love the juxtaposition of Maggie as this like 50s sock hop teeny bopper type you know her her whole look is that very traditional look and yet obviously she's going to be a not very traditional 1950s kind of woman i also like the way that their costuming mirrors uh aziraphale and crowley's yeah we we saw a lot of that kind of mirroring in season one where there's you know anathema um mirrored Aziraphale in some ways and you know, different characters reflected each other. And this is like just so much more blatant that Nina is the the prickly, sarcastic, crowley <laughs> parallel and, and Maggie is the very sweet, kind of anxious Aziraphale parallel. One thing that really stuck in my craw with this setting is why is the coffee shop named after a Patrick Henry quotation. Give me coffee or give me death. What does that mean to an English audience? Because <laughs> it means something very specific to an American audience. It sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, does, people, do, does anybody in England know what that is a reference to? I would doubt it. I, so I can't, I can't say as I... I can't say for sure because it's been so long since I lived there, but the... Cultural contamination of Britain by the U.S. is huge. <laughs> like, That's a good way of putting um, American it. American <laughs> cultural imperialism is hits the U.K. like probably more than um, than most countries because like we speak the same language. I, I think that's what we call hoisted by your own petard. I learned it by watching you. Okay. I <laughs> And I, like, I think that there is, I think I have read, like, pieces where there are, uh, where, where, you know, like, British kids do see some, like, 
you know, American history is part of British history because it shows up in media so much. Right. And when you're young, it's difficult to differentiate the two. I just assumed it was because every other possible coffee shop name has been taken. I, I think that the, the coffee quote is American because Americans drink coffee and not that weak ass tea that, that Brits drink. That's actually Valid. a really good point. Yeah. Valid. Yeah. It was really hard to find coffee in England. And English people would say, oh, there's a Starbucks. And I said, yes, but I'm looking for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the coffee is American theory. I'm going to roll with that. Yeah. So from that scene, um, Nina spots uh, John Ham wandering naked through the streets of Soho. She sees John's ham. <laughs> she sees John's ham, and so do the rest of us. <laughs> well, we don't because there's a box in front of it. He's got a box in front of his junk. Ooh, it's my dick in a box. He's <laughs> 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 bringing a present to Zerophil. Causing, causing great unrest. The whole scene where, like, Aziraphale opens the door and Gabriel gives him this big hug and Aziraphale's eyes are huge. He's like, what the fuck is happening? I have to mention that hug. I love how in the hug he grabs him and then does that little, like, shake shiver thing and you can see his butt just jiggle. And it, it just, it, like, I love that just little extra cherry on top. It just makes the whole scene. So to speak. <laughs> Shout out to John Hamm's trainers who got clearly got him into just the right shape for that. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of he's kind of Greek statuary, isn't he? He is. He is. Yeah. So we we actually had a discussion about the point where he turns around and the crowd gasps because <laughs> because in shock and the, admiration, the, 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 no the, doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rumors about John Hamm abound, and and I get the feeling that on set, if if the sock wasn't in use, that was a genuine reaction. <laughs> but I'm thinking that the the reaction in universe is actually supposed to be that he has no genitalia. Y yeah. Uh, I guess it depends on if he's wearing a human body or not, because angels don't. Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking, is he turns around and they all just see a Ken doll standing there, and they're like, what the hell? Maybe. I mean, we saw that in Dogma. Yeah. And I mean, this show has so many, I don't know if it's just because of the topic or if it's deliberate, but I see so many, like, Dogma. <laughs> they're not, it's not references, but it's homage, I think. Mm-hmm. Some similar ideas. The entire interaction with Gabriel and Aziraphale, Aziraphale is just so close to losing it. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing here? I don't know. <laughs> and it's also interesting how, like, innocent, naive, and happy he, he is. Gabriel? Right, yeah. I imagine this might have been what he was like before he became the Archangel Gabriel. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I was in thinking. More, in more innocent times, yeah. Very similar to very similar to Crowley's opening scene. Mm -hmm. Like just everything is so amazing and so new. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, if they basically wiped out his history and sent him back to his original state as like this innocent, wide-eyed, very enthusiastic. <laughs> I mean, he loved that cocoa a lot. <laughs> That Coco scene was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so this is actually something that, that we that I was talking about. Um, the, so, Aziraphale is much more like that kind of innocent, naive, and happy about the world than all the other angels. You know, and I was thinking, like, that's probably because he's been on Earth and away from their internal politics and their bullshit, in the same way that Crowley, Crowley is like a much happier devil than all the rest of his, because he's not caught up in their daily grind. Well, could you imagine working in an office with Haster? <laughs> I have had some jobs, though, that weren't far off. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, like Marxist alienation, man. <laughs> You know, Crowley and Aziraphale have avoided that, and so as a result, they are both much closer to the angels that God created than the angels and the devils are. 
Is there is there a film more than Crowley? Because Crowley did go through the fall. That yes took some yeah. of the shine off everything. Oh, absolutely. But you know what I mean. Like even even so, Crowley is still. I think in some ways, um, like Crowley still cares about things like ducks. Yes. Yeah. You know, and like I don't see angels caring about ducks. Yeah, because I mean, and we know that from the angels' point of view, the next important thing to happen is the war with hell. Right, they're just waiting for that. Which also kind of, I wonder if this will be addressed later in the series, is how they're dealing with the fact that, you know, the battle they were preparing for has come and gone, and they have no idea when it's going to happen again, and what they, what, you know, what, what's their strategic objective now? It's inevitable. So maybe, I think they're probably just like, well, I guess that was not the battle we were planning for. We thought it was, but we don't know the plan. While um, Azurafel is trying to get some kind of a straight answer out of Gabriel, Shax shows up to tell Crowley that it is, in fact, Gabriel who is missing. In the scene where Crowley is leaning against his car, you can see that, like, all his stuff is in the back seat, <laughs> Including the plants. The yeah. plants, yes. <laughs> he got kicked out of his apartment, apparently. Yeah, the scene where he's, like, driving uh, and Azurfell calls him, you can see all his plants waving back and forth in, in the back seat. I think it must be like the TARDIS, like, you know, it's bigger on the inside, so you can get all of his plants in there. This is the scene where I noticed that Shax may be um, coded as autistic on some level. Oh, um, interesting point. Because Shax does not understand sarcasm. In that first scene with Shax and Crowley, she just doesn't know how to behave. She doesn't know how to read him. And, and, and She's very literal. Yeah. Exactly. And so it just seems, it just seems somewhat like um, an autism or neurodivergence coding in that character, which honestly we see more in the heavenly host than we do with the demons. But in other cases, but yeah. Interesting. I hadn't picked up on that. You know, like like the fact that he's like, you can call or you can appear, but you can't do both. And she's like, mm-hmm. why? <laughs> why can't I call you as I'm walking up behind you? That's yeah, that's really. And she didn't recognize sarcasm when he said, you know, oh, Gabriel's having a bad day. That's too bad. Yeah, and, and sarcasm seems to be a thing that demons use. Yeah, so it wouldn't be unfamiliar in hell. That's that's an interesting yeah. take. I hadn't noticed that. In the next scene, we go to heaven, and um, we have a new angel, Muriel, finding a physical object on the floor. And it's got a quote from Job on the side of the matchbox, which I have no idea how this is in any way related to the plot, but it's obviously important because it pops out in bright red letters. It's, it's a section from the description of Leviathan, and given the kind of apocalyptic stuff we saw earlier, I wonder if this means that we're going to be seeing some... So you think big... Leviathan might be the next big bad? Probably not, no, because the Leviathan's just a monster. Right? It's a creature. I don't, it, so it wouldn't be a big bad, but it certainly could show up. So then we get to the scene where Crowley meets Azurfell in the coffee shop. The scene is hilarious. Crowley's six espresso order... The whole thing about the naked man in the bookshop and Crowley just looks at him. <laughs> Why do you have a naked man in your bookshop? <laughs> the thing that was really cute about that scene is um, when Nina asks Zerfell about the naked man friend and he starts to say, well, he's not my. And then he looks at Crowley and like, he's not my friend was what he said about Crowley back when um, the actor said, what does your friend think in Shakespeare? And it's like, you can see he's almost going to go the same thing. And then he looks at Crowley and kind of goes, I can't say that. Because <laughs> if I say that, it means he really is my friend. And he isn't. So I have to say something else. So he's not naked anymore. <laughs> he's not technically a man. <laughs> so then we get another um, short scene with Nina and Maggie in the coffee shop. Maggie brings Nina a gift. She's very sweet. Nina kind of doesn't know how to react to that, and so she makes a point of bringing up the fact that she has a partner. I didn't get the impression that she didn't know how to deal with it. I think that she gets hit on all the time, and she has obviously a lot of fear about her partner's jealousy and, and response, but... I'm kind of going by the way she reacted to the to the record. She's like, I don't have anything to play this on, and it, it, her reaction was very hesitant. It wasn't so much a, no, thank you, I have a partner, this is inappropriate. It was a oh, this is sweet, but I don't know what to do with this gift. I read it completely differently from that. 
That's fair. No, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because I didn't see that at all. It seemed almost angry. Like, like I saw instant anger in Nina. Maybe this is not the first time somebody has compared her to Nina Simone. Maybe she doesn't like Nina Simone. Mm, maybe. I don't know. She seemed really put off. Like, like more angry than confused to me. Interesting. So then we get the whole scene with Crowley in the bookshop. And Crowley's like just bursting to tell him something happened. I bet you don't. I bet can't guess who. And Israel's, yeah, actually, I think I can. (laughs) (laughs) Crowley screams when he sees Gabriel. Like he's genuinely scared. Gabriel tried to kill him when he was in Aziraphale's body. He's legitimately scared of him. That's understandable. I mean, you know, like, he is the top angel. And therefore terrifying. <laughs> yeah. All angels are terrifying. And and archangels even more so, and the boss even more more so. I mean, David Tennant, is his physicality in that scene is beautiful like when he screams and jumps back he looks like a cartoon character his whole body gets involved <laughs> well didn't he get the part because of his physicality and yes then... yeah that's why game wanted to cast him so badly which is suddenly making me realize I, I saw a thing that said tim curry and michael kane are the two best actors in muppet movies michael kane because he treated the muppets as other actors and tim curry because he treated himself as another muppet yeah which makes suddenly makes me think that uh David Tennant would treat himself as another Muppet and needs to be in a a Muppet Muppet movie. movie. Oh my God, does David (laughs) Tennant ever need to do a Muppet movie? So apart from the fact that Gabriel obviously terrifies him, there's this interaction where he says, did you ask him properly? And then he gets right up in Gabriel's face and asks him, what are you doing here? And I find that interesting because like... um, Crowley and Aziraphale obviously have some power over humans, like in the scene where they froze the chattering nun, uh, Sister Mary Loquacious, and get her to answer questions. And it, I'm, I'm wondering if he's trying to do the same thing to Gabriel, and it either doesn't work, or, Gab- or just nothing, there's no answer to give. Also, though, I don't think angels can lie. And I think Crowley knows that. Aziraphil lies all the time. Well, okay, yes, and we all know about Aziraphil, right? (laughs) (laughs) Aziraphil lied to God, (laughs) like, day two. (laughs) And feels bad when he lies. I mean, I just think that maybe Crowley knows that Gabriel would not straight up lie. So Aziraphil and Crowley go off into the back room and have a big fight. Aziraphale wants to help. Crowley's like, no, we'll dump his body somewhere. <laughs> we need to unload this guy. The whole, the whole dynamic has very much changed from season one. In season one, they obviously were like, would help each other. But there was this whole subterfuge around asking for help. Like in season two, there's none of this meet me at the third alternative rendezvous. Or, you know, hinting that, you know, maybe I could use a hand here. They're straight up. I want your help. Will you help me? This strongly implied that they are at least partially cohabitating at this point. Well, I mean, when you live in your car, I guess this is the closest thing that he has to an actual home. And and it's been their place where they get drunk together for a good long time. One thing that caught me is that he refers to, like, his fragile, peaceful life. And that scene in the park, I really got the impression that he was bored. Like, his whole conversation with Shaq's like, that's all so pointless. Why are we doing this? I'm like, dude just hangs out in the park all day because he can't figure out anything else to do with his time now that he's not running around causing trouble. Yeah, now that he no longer has, you know, KPIs to adhere to. now that it's threatened, (laughs) he's all like, this is really important. This boringness is really important to me. Do not threaten Which is a little bit uh, Doctor Who-ish, too, right? Like that's a, that was a feat, like that's a, a common thread in the character, and, and Tennant portrayed that as like the Doctor is all about needs to be in exciting events all the time, or gets bored. The Doctor gets to run away in a, in you know a time time and space machine to find trouble to get into, whereas Crawley's kind of stuck 
on Earth and likely doesn't want to act, doesn't, hasn't, may not have realized that what he needs to do is to go out and find something to do. I took it as a reference to their relationship. Like, this could destroy their relationship. Mm. Like, you know, destroy the, the, the comfortable mm. peace that they have found together. Could be. I hadn't thought of that. So he storms out of the bookshop. He's furious. He starts smoking. <laughs> His neighbors are like, that dude is smoking. <laughs> what the hell? Adam's and- family reference. <laughs> yes yes definitely so that was the thing I, I was wondering I was like definitely interested in your opinion on like I saw that no, so nobody on the street reacts to him smoking right um, I thought that was indicating that um, they didn't you know most people didn't see it and it's pointing out something special about like the two new characters um, but Siobhan's view is that it's London, nobody pays any attention to other people when they're out in the street. People in London will walk right through you. So I just figured it was because they were just a little bit more observant because they're not on their way somewhere, that this is more um, just crowds are like that. (laughs) If you're not naked, they're not looking at you. (laughs) They're both also in hypervigilance mode. Uh, Nina's in hypervigilance mode because... She, it, she's thinking about her partner and needing to get home. And uh, Maggie's in hypervigilance mode because she's got a crush. And so she, that's making her, like, super aware of everything around her. And Nina is the first one who notices. She's the one who says, that guy is smoking. And then Maggie turns around to look. This split second where the lightning comes out of Crowley, um, everybody in the crowd behind him freezes. So I think he did actually stop time for a split second there. But then when the lightning bounces around and hits the coffee shop, people are moving again. So I think it was just like a split second where Crowley blows off all his steam, freezes time so that nobody notices. But the the rest of his actions take place in real time. So from there, we get to heaven. And this is Uriel and, and Michael are having a little bit of a tiff about who's actually in charge. <laughs> Michael's like, we're all in charge, led by me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bit of a corporate shuffle going on in heaven. We're all equals. I'm just a little more equal than you. Yes, exactly. Rourke pointed out, I think at this point, that, that they got that actress because... Because Michelle Gomez was not available. <laughs> Axel had the exact same observation. Mm-hmm. They have Me too. very similar <laughs> facial types. So then we in, uh, introduce a new angel, uh, Sarah Kale. I have no idea how to pronounce that name. Played by Liz Carr, who is a disabled, primarily a comedian, but also an actor. Uh, I actually, we looked at her biography yesterday, and this is an incredibly accomplished woman. And she rolls up in a power chair. I found this fascinating. You have... Angels who, in theory, can look like anything they want. They're modeling themselves on the human design, because I guess that's what's fashionable right now. And all human designs are equally valid. So we have one who's in a power chair, and it's just completely accepted. Like, there's no... Makes sense to me. Only suckers are going to walk. <laughs> a floating power chair at that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that depiction also does lend credence to your hypothesis, Madeline, that um, the devil is neurodivergent. Shacks. That Shacks is, yeah. yeah because we're, right, like, we're seeing some diversity. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is really a really cool, I mean, that is really cool casting choices. So they spend a lot of time poking at this matchbox. Apparently, the f- idea that a physical object could be in heaven is just like not supposed to be a thing that ever happens. They're all carrying folders, and yeah, but those are those are heaven folders, not not physical folders. They're 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 not made out of earth material. They're made out of heaven material. The matches used to be called Lucifer's, yes, or, or some people yes. call them Lucifer's. Oh, is that true? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, because then they they would use sulfur in the head, right? Yes. And they're, they're also a bright light. Yes. It was the brightest light. Yes, there's a, they're, they're very much intimidated by this. They keep poking at it. So if they go down to Earth, they have to wear a physical body in order to interact 
with humans. So I imagine they have like a locker at the front door that they put the meat suit into <laughs> before proceeding on into heaven. I think they just will it into being because we saw in the first season, we saw uh, Crowley make his face into a, a lizard kind of face at one point. But the quartermaster issued out a suit, a, a body for Azurafel. So they've got an inventory. That's a good point. They need to keep careful control over everything. Because the last time they didn't, half of them became... There was a big war and half of them became devils. And, and somebody lost a flaming sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now they, now it, now they all live in fear. Yeah, the, uh, that was something, a conversation that Axel and I had when we were, we were looking at just this conversation about who's in charge. They're very, very concerned about hierarchy. They're very, very concerned about roles and regulations. And I'm like, well, they saw what happened to half of their siblings when people started getting a little slack ass and, you know, thinking they were allowed to have opinions and shit. <laughs> so, so like the, the idea is that, that maybe all, all angels and all devils have PTSD from the war. Mm. Yes from the fall and they're just react they're responding to it differently so next we get to the scene where beelzebub drags crowley back to hell in a swarm of flies which is probably the most disgusting thing i've ever seen but that scene was amazing in terms of uh the effects yes like i really loved how it looked even though it was horrifying so beelzebub actually has an office you can see the swarms of hell outside of her window but she has a place where she can get away from people and she it, this is the scene where they explain what extreme sanctions are that if you're wiped out of the book of life you cease to exist you never existed i'm assuming that when michael was on the phone that she was talking to beelzebub because you could hear that it was a woman's voice responding so helen heaven obviously are still talking to each other so i said i have a minor quibble um and beelzebub is my minor quibble um mostly because I found the previous actor for being five foot two was amazingly menacing just in the way that she spoke. She had this kind of intensity. Um, she spoke very slowly. And whenever she made the S sound, they added that buzz. This actor doesn't come across as menacing, more smarmy. Um, and I, I feel like she hasn't got the same gravitas. Like that nothing wrong with the appearance, nothing wrong with the performance just the voice having said that they did an amazing job with her teeth <laughs> the makeup on her teeth is horrifying <laughs> her whole mouth with the blood but maybe this is this is her reaction to the events of the previous season like she's changed in some way i liked how they addressed that Chloe looks at her and goes are you wearing a new face <laughs> she's like oh this old thing <laughs> this forever there's been a change in, in in hell's fashions yeah you change your face like you change your shirt like once every couple of centuries whether you need to or not so beelzebub sends crowley back to his car he's like fuck azurafel what have you got yourself into and he drives back to the bookshop and it's also worth noting beelzebub makes him an offer for like a, a job in you know like a rank in hell of being a duke which speaks to hell having a, its own hierarchy Oh yeah, um, but more, but more of a distributed one rather than heavens. Very clearly, like there is a top. Well, well, the difference is the difference is heaven is a top-down structure, yeah. and and hell is more of a shit funnel structure. Yes, but also hell seems to be more feudal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, heaven is corporate and and capitalist, yep. and hell is feudal. I thought resistance was feudal. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ouch. Oh my god. Resistance joke. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> exactly. All right, move on. Move on. Moving Next on. Scene. <laughs> Next scene, we're back to Maggie and Nina being locked into the coffee shop. This was genuinely a frightening feeling scene. Nina's partner <laughs> is is awful. <laughs> Becoming more and more scary, yeah. The more yeah. Nina's anxiety about being late is very real. Anybody who's ever had a controlling partner, I'm sure, can relate. Or a controlling parent, for that matter. So Crowley returns, sees their signs, and says, Oh, my bad. Let's them out. I wondered why didn't they smash a window? Because the cost of a replacement window is, is 
pretty high compared to if we can just mm. you know hang out for a couple hours and get out of here on our own yeah like yeah i guess so insurance isn't going to cover it london and then you have to guard your shop because you've got an open yeah. window right until that's you true get somebody yeah come and fix it so the londoners walking past and like ignoring the signs just is more proof that they just didn't see cruelly smoking even though it was right there yeah, the um, signs are all up there, and the woman just waves and keeps going. So that, to me, is Londoner indifference. Yeah. Like, they, they see it, they don't care, because it would, require her it would require her to move out of her way. Yeah, I've met Londoners. I, I totally buy it. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to blame London. I think that's cities in general. I mean, London's worse. Yeah, yeah. London is full of, of, of British people. Yep. So it's way worse. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else in England is, is, is lovely. People are lovely. London, there's yeah, there's, something... there's fewer British people there. <laughs> it's, the density, it's, it's, it's the British people per square mile that's the problem. Yeah, it's the density of British people that, cause, that, that causes the issue. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought the whole, um, you know, oh, my bad thing was kind of neat because... As we have seen from season one, Crowley's activity as a demon was mainly causing those kind of irritating inconveniences and life disruptions that just make your day worse so that you could become a worse person. And then he does it by accident and he's like, oh, well, I'll just undo this because I didn't mean to. It's. I hadn't thought of that bit, gets, but yeah. He gets, he gets to be retired now so he can just like undo damage that he did instead of going around spreading this kind of shit on purpose. Yeah. And it's also, he, he fixes it immediately, like, which he doesn't need to. So like that is, seems like very anti-devil um, programming. Yeah. Right? He is, he is behaving very unlike the way, because, you know, any of his peers, if they stopped being a devil for whatever reason, wouldn't have to do it probably wouldn't undo it just because. Because that's effort. Whereas he does it completely casually. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah, sorry. Here you go. And then you see all the text messages show up on the screen, and they're all, like, more and more. Like, there's literally hundreds of them, and each one's more and more pissed off. <laughs> and you can just, yeah. it's like, oh, shit. Pissed off, not worried. Yeah. We had this conversation about mutual respect. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was awful because since there was the only building that got locked up that partner we don't know that partner's gender identity or anything yet but that partner um won't believe nina when nina comes home and says you know this crazy thing happened there is no way that that partner believes it i was afraid that the next time we saw nina that she might have a black eye or something i was really afraid of that like i have a lot I have not had abusive partners, and I had a lot of anxiety around this character. So then we get to the scene where Crowley comes back into the bookshelf. I adore this scene. <laughs> Aziraphale's immediate reaction is to just be so bitchy. <laughs> I'm back. I can see that. <laughs> and then they go through the apology, and they have an apology dance. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> We were very curious about the dates, and we looked them up to see what the dates referenced. Us too. So, what did you? What were your conclusions? Oliver Cromwell. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's Oliver Cromwell's invasion of Ireland specifically, like which was which is peak terrible. It's also when he threw down the gauntlet against the Scots, wasn't it? Uh, could be. Don't don't remember. Yeah. So Azurafel said, "There's no way that Oliver Cromwell is going to do these things," and Crowley said. Just you watch. I bet you, and if you were wrong, you have to do the dance. Yep. Yep. I'm convinced that the dance was Crowley's invention, that he made Aziraphale do the dance because he thought it would be funny. Mm -hmm. yes, and, absolutely. And as always, anything Crowley does comes back to bite him in the ass. <laughs> what was the second one? Um, the second date was the French Revolution. Yep. 1791. So 1791, it might not have been the French Revolution, because 1791 was also when John Simcoe founded Toronto. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, yeah. That, okay. <laughs> and, yeah, 1941, something, something happened in Europe, I think. But, you know, I mean, it was, it was the continent. 
you know, the mainland. So Britons clearly wouldn't care about it, wouldn't notice. Yeah, I'm wondering what specifically. Oh, 1941, I think, was when the Blitzes started. So so my theory was it was about that whole incident in the church where um, Aziraphale was trying to play a secret agent. And... Oh, yeah, it could be that exact. Yeah, good No, It good was point. obviously because Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit was premiered in... 1941 so <laughs> so they go through this whole thing about we are going to make the tiniest teeniest half a miracle to prevent gabriel from being detected by anyone who might be looking for him um curly's been using miracles this whole time i mean he used a miracle to change lights he used you know a miracle on the the door he's not limited in miracles but it looks like aziraphale um, has been cut off. I mean, he can still do it, but he's not supposed to, or he's not, he's afraid to, or well, something. This, this goes back to heaven takes accounting and hell doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So Crowley lost access to his apartment. Aziraphale lost access to his miracle allowance. Yeah. I think, I think what it is, is that, um, heaven, track all miracles that occur where they occur who did them you know make sure that everything is is you know official and on the books and if you don't if he so if he gets if he gets seen then they'll see it and the point of this is to not be seen keeping his head down so they do the faintest tiniest most infinitesimal fraction of a half miracle each and alarm bells go off <laughs> And Heaven gets this massive alert with red flashing lights and klaxons, and they figure out that something's going on at the bookshop. Dun, dun, dun. I wonder what their first clue was. The giant plume of purple magical smoke emitting <laughs> from, from the shop, maybe? I thought that was a really nice, like, it's a really nice signaling device. I'm actually kind of surprised that Heaven, uh, when they said, I think Gabriel's gone to Earth, that they would not, on their own, reach out to Aziraphale and say, keep an eye out. He might be in trouble. I kind of assume he's been fired. You know, and, and since he's been fired, they don't want to talk to him because talking to them might get them in trouble. And getting into trouble means, you know, becoming a, de a devil. They're the people who always, who always followed the rules. So that is the end of the episode. Any additional thoughts? I'm very excited for episode two. Which I'm going to go watch episode two in the second we hang up here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm down for doing that. I loved Muriel. She's a fan favorite. She is so cute. She's adorable. It's also interesting. I was commenting on the costuming. Like I love Heaven's foppish menswear. Fashion, mm -hmm. with the Burberry plaid, and just I just love that. <laughs> so one thing that I want to bring up because I didn't find this out until after we taped all the season one episodes. Amazon always cuts off the end credits, so you don't hear them. If you go back and look at the uh, end credits for season one, it's the opening credits, but done in a different style. The Taking of Peckham 123 by Carter USM. Thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, with, uh, but with the Buddy Holly song interspersed in the middle. It's kind of like the, 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 the end credits for this one is kind of like a bit like a madrigal. Yes. Which is an interesting thing to do to Carter USM. <laughs> I have had that song in my head since, I don't know, we watched, we rewatched. The first season, like, it's just been constantly in my head because I hear it every Ever, ever since you right. recognized the, the similarities. I'm okay with that. I love that band. But yeah. <laughs> I feel like they deserve a royalty or something. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to bring up about this episode, um, you did mention Crowley doing the miracles while driving the car uh, in order to get through driving his car 90 miles an hour through through London like he does. I actually did not like them showing that. I liked the idea that it was just like everything just fell into place. It was just, you know, the, the dark one's own luck kind of situation where everything's by the skin of his teeth, but it just works. There, There is um, a lot of 
text in the book that specifically says that certain things work because they expect them to. The jeep that uh, they get from the soldiers on the military base has a cassette deck because all cars have a cassette deck. That's just how things work. This in his apartment, Crowley's um, stereo doesn't have speakers. His fridge isn't plugged in, but everything works because he expects it to. But maybe it has stopped working for Crowley because of his because he's cut off, and so now he has to. It used to just work, but now he has to make it work. Oh, now it's, now it's manual. <laughs> so I think that wraps up the episode. So uh, Ruark, you want to close us out? Uh, we want to say thank you as always to Michael and Jen out at the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Thank you, Michael thank and you, Jen. Michael and Jen. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us, it's at Gaiman Watch Party. That's on all of the uh, social medias. If you want to get a mailbag letter read on the air, you can send that to us at GaimanWatchParty at gmail.com. Siobhan, take us out. And today for the final question, if you were an angel in charge of some department in building the universe, what department would you want to be in charge of? I want to build all the creepy crawlies. All the spiders and snakes. And the spiders and snakes, and, and yes, and then I would probably be also shuffling vaguely downward after doing that. I want to be the angel in charge of tacos and donuts. <laughs> You've expanded your repertoire. You, st- I, I, you moved on to donuts now. I have always said I want to start a a restaurant and call it Tacos and Donuts because, in my opinion, every culture has a taco and every culture has a donut, and I want to serve them all. You should add dumplings to the list. Every culture has some version of yes. food wrapped in bread, unless unless tacos count as a dumpling. I, Ta- tacos <laughs> do not count as a dumpling. It, it's simply a form factor situation. Burrito could arguably count as a dumpling, but a a, a taco by definition is open faced. So. I want to be in charge of plants, specifically the subset of plants that mess with you. Mushrooms, caffeine. um, Ergot. Ergot, yeah. Like, things that do things to you when you eat them. Plants that you can only eat after you prepare it in an extremely specific way. Like, just things that are full of, like, capiscason and, and, and psilocybin and, you know. So, so you want to be the angel of, of psychedelics. Not just psychedelics. Psychoactives. Psychoactives, yes. Psychoactives, okay. Yes, I want to be the angel of psychoactives. You're probably shuffling vaguely downward with me. I'm, I'm <laughs> right beside you. <laughs> I feel like we can go hand in hand. But fungus are not actually plants. Fungus are actually more closely related to animals. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I branched out a little. Okay, Axel. Fjords. Okay, sorry about fast. (laughs) Exactly the vibe I I would like to have as an angel, I think. Exactly the vibe you kind of have as a human. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)